Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. The first baby to be born in the U.S. using in vitro fertilization, or IVF, was in 1981. Decades later, at least one million American babies have been born with the help of a lab, according to the Society for Assisted Reproductive Technology. Today, where we live, we explore a recent story in New York Magazine that suggests thousands of viable embryos have been discarded due to one test. What does that mean for women and their partners who have tried to conceive using IVF, a costly procedure? We'll ask two doctors who specialize in reproductive medicine, and we want to hear from you, too. That's coming up. First, it's been nearly a month after Hurricane Maria devastated the island of Puerto Rico. Access to water is scarce. Much needs to be rebuilt. Now, Connecticut has a close connection to Puerto Rico. Many Puerto Ricans live in our state. That's why WMPR decided to send a reporting team to the island. WMPR's news director Jeff Cohen and digital reporter Ryan Karen King left for San Juan on Monday. The reporting has taken them to other towns on the island, including Caguas and Sidra. To tell us more, Jeff Cohen joins us now. Hi, Jeff. Good morning. So what does it look like on the ground there? That's a good question. It depends on where you are. We're, we're staying in Old San Juan, which is the, the historic district of, of San Juan, which is pitch black at night. <laughs> There's not a lot of lighting. Uh, our hotel is on a generator uh, that mostly works. Um, but the streets of Old San Juan, which are normally really alive, are at night really very quiet and vacant. Uh, then when we venture out of the city, uh, we've driven uh, south pretty much to a city, a city called Caguas, a, a place called Sidra, all the way south to Salinas. What you see along the, on, along the highways and the roads are just debris all the way uh, lining the sides of the roads, uh, fallen trees that have been cleared, trees on mountainsides and hillsides that have just been stripped bare, but now a month later are starting new growth. Uh, you start to see them regreening, which is uh, interesting. And then, as you've, I'm sure, heard elsewhere, all along the highways, you see cars pulled over, people who find a cell signal that you know pings on their phone, and then once one person pulls over, you'll see a whole slew of cars. In fact, I pulled over yesterday just to let Ryan out of the car to take some pictures, uh, and uh, we we started a chain of people who thought we had cell reception, but we, but we didn't. So uh, that's what you see as you drive. Now you've met a lot of people uh, just in the last uh, few days. Tell us about Guillermo Claus. We were on the airplane direct flight from Bradley to San Juan, and, and a row ahead of us, a, a woman was having a respiratory attack. Fortunately, Guillermo Claus was sitting right in front of her. As a younger man, he had been trained as a respiratory tech, and he calmed her. He he looked at her and he he sort of you know consoled her as she just to calm her down because it was the anxiety that was exacerbating her coughing. Uh, and and once she was stabilized, uh, I went up and I spoke with him just to get a little bit of his story about that situation. But then it turns out he told me a lot more. He was traveling to San Juan to pick up his two sons who were living with his former wife. Uh, and so uh, that was a pretty emotional meeting. And it wasn't easy for him uh, to get down to San Juan. What did he have to do to get there? Yeah. Part of, you know, part of the challenge in this is getting seats on flights. 
another part of the challenge is actually paying for the flights. Um, so he actually had to sell his car uh, to be able to afford it. I had to sell my car to, to buy the plane tickets. I had to sell my vehicle if I could buy the plane tickets. And I have money in my pocket if I could get them out of Puerto Rico. And that doesn't bother me because that's what you got to do as a father. You mentioned that a meeting was emotional. You were there as well as our digital reporter Ryan Karen King when he saw his sons in San Juan. What did he tell them? Well, that's, <laughs> that's an interesting question. I'm laughing only because uh, the minute they met, we got separated by the, the TSA revolving door. So <laughs> it wasn't, wasn't exactly with him right at the very moment, though we did have some nice images uh, through the glass. But uh, they hugged, and that was the thing that I could see, if not hear, is, is that they hugged a lot. And one of the sons is, I think, 18 and one is 16. Uh, and anyone who's a parent can sort of sense the difference in ages. And both of them hugged him. The 18-year-old was clearly glad to see him. It was the 16-year-old, uh, Jomar, who kept hugging him repeatedly and finding him again and hugging him again. It was clearly a very emotional meeting for, for all of them. You've connected with other uh, Connecticut residents, even former Connecticut residents. Uh, Luis Coto is a former Hartford City Council member. What's he doing on the island? You know, Luis came, I guess, about a week ago, I think, and he lives now in Cambridge. And what he did after the storm was he started a fundraising effort, uh, and he bought just bags and bags and bags. Well, I think he came down with 13 bags total, uh, including inflatable solar lights uh, and manual water filters that he then travels around. He went to his hometown uh, in Sidra and wanted to just to sort of take care of the people in his neighborhood where his parents lived at the time. Uh, and his aunts are still there. I met some of his family. And so he goes around and he distributes stuff and just gives it out and, you know, gives the proper, you know, I can't guarantee that this will get absolutely everything out, but it's better than drinking from the faucet and it's better than drinking from uh, some other local source that you might be going to. And, you know, as we went, one time we got lost. We were just driving around and we stopped at a, at a housing development and we asked some people uh, for directions and it turns out they hadn't had water or electricity uh, since the storm. Um, they, one woman was, had lived in Bridgeport, another man had lived in Holyoke. And, you know, water is the thing we hear every day. Water is the most important resource that people need. Electricity, one woman told me. In fact, we also then went to meet uh, Robert Cotto's mother. Robert Cotto is a former Hartford Board of Education member, and not his mother, rather, his his grandmother. We met her in her house. Her roof uh, over her bedroom had blown off during the storm. She was able to, with the help of others, uh, rebuild the roof temporarily. But whenever it rains, it rains in her bedroom. That's her biggest problem. The lights, she said, will eventually turn back on. Uh, but fixing her roof so it didn't rain in her bedroom would, is a high priority. And drinking water is a, is a high priority, not just for drinking, but for cooking, for cleaning, for all of it. You mentioned uh, the need for water. There are There's a group that you followed uh, of other Connecticut residents who were there uh, working near the river. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Yeah. So um, we were able to meet up yesterday with a team of a handful of people, all from Connecticut. Uh, most were veterans. The one who's not a veteran is a 34-year fire lieutenant in the city of Meriden. Uh, and they all, uh, most of them had Puerto Rican ties, family ties here on the island. Some grew up here. And they wanted to do something. And they were, they called themselves self-deployed. They don't have any orders to be here. But what they did was they said, you know, we, we see a problem and we can help fix it. 
And one of those uh, volunteers, these uh, veterans, is Ray Gwasp. Let's hear what he told you. We've been sitting on a couch on the sidelines waiting for things to get better. Needle really hasn't moved that much. We thought we could maybe do some help and do some good and help support what the efforts are. This is such a huge disaster of enormous, I mean, proportions. I couldn't imagine how anybody, any government, any group of people could wrap their arms around something this large and be successful in a short amount of time. It's interesting, uh, Jeff, uh, being here on the mainland, uh, many of us are are looking at uh, Puerto Rico and wondering what the federal government is doing to help this uh, island uh, nearly one month on since Hurricane Maria hit the island. Have you seen uh, workers uh, either related to FEMA or um, military, National Guard as you travel around the island? Well, uh, I can tell you that our hotel is probably uh, has a decent amount of personnel. I've seen some people wearing Army Corps of Engineers shirts. Um, A couple times we've seen uh, military convoys, I'd say twice, small convoys with one had two guys in the back of the truck, another one had maybe 10 or 12. That's not to say that they're not here and not working. And and to be honest, Lizzie, I think the, the, the reality is that people who we've spoken to have not seen them. So they, the people who need water say they, they have not seen FEMA. They ask us if we are FEMA, uh, and they've just not seen them. So what this team with folks with Ray Guasp is doing, is, what this team is doing is they're bringing a 250-gallon manually operated water purification and filtration system uh, to town by town. They, they visited six different towns. They've done it seven total times. And they went back where I met them yesterday was near a town called Salinas uh, on the Rio Nigua. And they just put a hose in the water, suck up manually with a pump 250 gallons of water, chemically treat it with chlorine to, to sanitize it and purify it, filter it. And as they do that, people literally are walking down from the hills, driving down from the hills, one guy on an ATV, with gallons and gallons of empty containers. Some containers were water containers. Some were like degreasing automotive containers, Clorox containers, anything they could find just to bring some water home. Jeff, what can you tell us about your plans today? Uh, today is the day to get a little work done. We've got, we've got a couple interviews uh, this morning. Hopefully we'll be meeting with a, a man whose family uh, is in Connecticut. His parents got out. Uh, WNPR's Diane Orson spoke with his family earlier, so his name is uh, Angel, and we'll be meeting with him this morning. And then this afternoon we're going to be meeting, uh, hopefully, with a university professor who um, uh, is active here, and you know, I think they call it the UPI, the University of Puerto Rico, is most likely, as I understand it, not not open at the at the moment. And so we'll touch base with him to get a sense of what life for him is like. I should mention uh, WNPR created a Facebook group uh, to have uh, Connecticut residents uh, send questions uh, to you and our digital reporter, uh, Ryan, again, who are uh, in Puerto Rico this week. We're going to tweet out the link to that Facebook group at Where We Live. Um, I wanted to ask, Jeff, you know, some of the Connecticut residents we've heard from have left a few questions. Uh, Mary Douglas wants to know, how are the people in the mountains? How are they receiving water and food? Right. So that's where we were yesterday when we were in uh, Salinas, we were in the mountains, and and th- to be honest, they're not getting a lot of water, um, and uh, this is one of the ways to do it. So one 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 man I met, his name was Joey Diaz. Joey is from Puerto Rico, but 
spent time in New Haven and in Enfield and other places. He came down with his family. It's not. He told me that it's not that they don't have drinking water. They have some drinking water bottled. It's not easy to get, but they have it. But when it comes to things like cooking and cleaning, they just don't have enough water to do it. So that's why he. I met him and his daughter and his son and his wife, among a lot of other people who just came down to the river to get water fresh from the river that they live right next to, standing in a pouring rainstorm. Uh, but they couldn't. They didn't have any water to drink or, or to cook with or to bathe, bathe with, and that's why they came. I've been speaking with WNPR's news director, Jeff Cohen. You can hear his stories this week on WNPR, and for more, go to our website, WNPR.org. You'll see uh, those stories that Jeff is filing from Puerto Rico, as well as photos from digital reporter Ryan Karen King. Again, that's at WNPR.org. Thanks, Jeff. We'll see you soon. You're welcome. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Coming up, we hear about a medical procedure that women and their families go through each year. In vitro fertilization, or IVF, has allowed millions of babies worldwide to be born since the first test tube baby in 1978. But a recent story in New York Magazine suggests the number could have been even greater but for one test. We'll have more after the break, and we want to hear from you, too. Did you undergo IVF to conceive a child? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. In the U.S. alone, close to one million babies have been born with the help of in vitro fertilization, or IVF. Chances are you or someone you know has undergone the costly procedure. We want to hear from you this hour. 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Beyond cost, IVF can be an emotional roller coaster. According to science journalist Stephen S. Hall, only 30% of implanted embryos lead to a successful birth. Now, his recent story in New York Magazine, A New Last Chance, raises questions about the test to determine if an embryo is viable. Now, how does reliance on this test impact the many women who tried to conceive using IVF and who were still unable to have a baby? Joining us now are two physicians who specialize in reproductive medicine. From the studios at Yale University, Dr. Pasquale Patrizio, a professor and director of the Yale Fertility Center. Dr. Patrizio, welcome to the show. Oh, good morning. Uh, thank you. Also in studio with me is Dr. Daniel Groh, visiting professor at UConn, lead physician and associate fellowship director at the Center for Advanced Reproductive Services. Dr. Groh, welcome to where we live. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'll start with uh, Dr. Patrizio. Uh, when we talk about IVF, many of us have heard of in vitro fertilization. But let's go uh, real basic. Explain to us how it actually, the procedure actually happens, Dr. Patrizio. In vitro fertilization uh, involves the uh, stimulation of uh, ovaries uh, with uh, some medications that we call uh, fertility drugs. For about 10 to 12 days, a, a woman is going to take this medication. And uh, then the eggs that are produced uh, are, uh, in the ovaries are harvested. And then they are put together with the sperm of the husband or partner in, uh, in the embry embryology lab. So by... Uh, uniting sperm and uh, eggs in uh, in the laboratory, then we have uh, the formation of embryos. And then uh, the embryos are followed uh, throughout their growth for about uh, three or five days. At that time, there is going to be the, uh, the final steps, which is the step of uh, transferring the embryo or embryos in the uterus. And uh, that's essentially is the basic of IVF. Now, there are many different fertility treatments. How common is IVF, Dr. Patrizio? 
It, uh, it is a, a, a technique that is utilized in about one every six couples in the United States because of, uh, as you said, many different reasons for, for it. Uh, can be either uh, problems in uh, uh, women or in men. Uh, they share the same bulk of uh, incidents of problems, about 35% women issues, 35-40% men issues, and another 20% uh, a combination of both or unexplained. I mentioned Dr. Daniel Groh is with us as well. He's with uh, UConn Center for Advanced Reproductive Services. How often are your patients undergoing IVF? So it's the most successful technology we have. And, and for young patients going through this, the, the live birth rate per cycle is 50 or 60 percent. So, so there are many other procedures that are less successful. Um, so a, you know, this center does about a thousand cycles a year to, uh, you know, to service a big part of Connecticut. Uh, one of the reasons we're talking about IVF today is this uh, New York Magazine cover story that I referenced by uh, Stephen S. Hall. Uh, when we're talking about IVF, again, uh, with the idea of embryos being implanted, there is a test that's used to, to help determine if the embryos are uh, viable. Can we talk about that test, Dr. Patrizio? Sure. What you are referring to is uh, uh, one of the tools uh, that uh, that is available in the embryology laboratory, by which uh, few cells are biopsied from uh, the embryos that uh, are then sent to a laboratory for. Uh, genetic analysis. I would like to also, for the listener, to explain a little bit what is the difference between genetic analysis and chromosome analysis. And the the difference, I would like to explain it by using a metaphor of a book. When we look for chromosome analysis in, in a book, we look for the number of chapters. And in the book of our life, we have 46 chapters. So there are two chapters, one, two chapters, two, two chapters, three, and so forth. Except the, the last chapters, chapters 23, in women are two chapters X. In men, there is a chapter X and a chapter Y. So when we look for chromosomal uh, disease, we look at how many chapters there are in, uh, in the cells. So if, for example, a, a, a case of Down syndrome or trisomy 21, in that particular case, there are three chapters 21. So that is an embryo that is going to probably produce a baby with the Down syndrome. For genetic disease, the issue is different. Now, in genetic disease, we are going to be looking for a particular page in a particular chapter, in a particular line of that page, whether, the, whether there is or not a misprint, or a mistyping of a, one word. For example, in the disease known as a cystic fibrosis, we have to go in chapter 7, we have to go in a particular page of the chapter, in a particular uh, um, uh, line of uh, the, the page, and look for a particular word and see whether that word has been misspelled. So there are, these are the two different types of uh, screening that can be applied. Now, the testing that we are discussing today, which is uh, called the PGS or lately has been renamed as a PGT, pre-implantation genetic testing, looks for chromosomal disorders. The genetic disorders, it's a very solid testing, very accurate, very reliable. 
So we are very comfortable with the diagnosis that is rendered by the laboratory concerning genetic disease. What is not been yet robust is the information that we are getting with the chromosomal disease because of a problem that exists in the uh, cells that we biopsy, which is the problem known as uh, mosaicism. Mosaicism is, uh, as a definition, the presence of different types of cells. And therefore, it depends on where you biopsy uh, the, uh, the cells. You can have a result of a normal, abnormal, or a mixture of normal and, and abnormal cells. And that makes the interpretation very difficult. You mentioned these mosaic embryos. Um, I'm curious, so depending on where, as you said, uh, the uh, cells are drawn out, um, at times the test will say that the cells are abnormal. But then depending on where the cell, if they were to take it from another part of the embryo, then the cells will be indicate as normal. So is that where the, uh, the confusion is in terms of which embryos should be implanted and what kind of advice the patients are getting? So You're exactly right, yes. Yeah. I'll talk, go to Dr. <coughs> Dr. Groh. So, it, yeah, Lucy, that's a, it's a great question. And, and um, the technology that we've been using over the last five years or so um, it may be a little longer than that. Um, we've just gotten a simple answer. We biopsy for one cell in, a, in an eight cell, but most, most frequently we're, we're biopsying blastocysts or these balls of cells. And we're taking five cells from the outer layer of this, of this blastocyst. And, and what we're finding is that, is that sometimes there's a mix of normal and abnormal cells. And, and past technology or technology that's reported in this article recently, um, we got a simple answer, normal or abnormal. And, and the normals we would preferentially transfer to the patient for pregnancy. The abnormals sometimes got discarded. And what we're finding is that there are shades of gray. There are shades of normal and abnormal. And, and the newer versions of this test and the latest technology is, is now reporting that cells are a little bit abnormal or a lot abnormal. And so, so this mosaicism or, or, or embryos that are a little abnormal, turns out that many times they could lead to a normal pregnancy. This is where we live. Uh, today we're talking about IVF or in vitro fertilization and uh, the decisions made about whether or when an embryo should be implanted, uh, can, specifically this test, uh, PGS. Uh, in studio with me is Dr. Daniel Grove, visiting professor at UConn, lead physician and associate fellowship director at the Center for Advanced Reproductive Services. And joining us from the studios at Yale University, Dr. Pasquale Patrizio, professor and director of the Yale Fertility Center. Now, if you've undergone IVF, uh, we'd like to hear from you. You can join the conversation. 860-275-7266. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, now, Dr. Patrizia, I'd like to go back to you uh, because um, Dr. Groh mentioned this, uh, this gray area, so to speak. Is this something that uh, is cause for concern? Uh, should uh, patients stick with this test, PGS? Well, the, the areas of uh, uh, gray and uh, we really don't know the meaning of uh, of, of this uh, shade of grace. Really, um, if you ask me personally, I I'm in a situation right now where I don't feel comfortable to offer a test that uh, it does not provide an unequivocal answer. Uh, 
And therefore, uh, yes, there are still many patients that may benefit of the testing, but has to be individualized and not to be uh, offered uh, uh, until the testing itself is uh, validated with robust uh, more data. It is really not, uh, I just want to stress, it's really not the technology, uh, in other words, the genetic uh, platform that is at fault. Actually, they are very robust. You know, the technology is very valid. It's a problem of where are we biopsying. If I take five cells out of 100 cells, it really depends on which what cell did I get. Did I get the normal one? Did I get the abnormal one? Did I get a mixture of normal and abnormal? And what does that mean, that shade of gray? Since there are babies that have been born by transferring uh, uh, not only shade of gray, but uh, embryos that were originally diagnosed as abnormal, uh, that's what was the, the reason of that article, that there is a, a chance that uh, by not having a, a, a robust technology yet, uh, we may be uh, making a wrong assumption and we may be uh, discarding an embryo that could have had the potential for uh, becoming a baby. Dr. Groh, would you like to talk about that as well? I would. Um, you know, I, I don't think that Dr. Patricia was suggesting that we should bar this technology. I think that there's a, there are um, quite a range of utilization of PGS throughout fertility centers in the country. Um, there are, are good fertility centers that have high pregnancy rates that use PGS in five to you know, 25 or 30 percent of their patients, and they have very, very good ongoing pregnancy rates. Um, there are programs that have made the leap to offer this or to do this um, technology with nearly 100% of their patients. And I think that um, Dr. Petrucci and I would both agree that that, you know, is an example of, of medicine getting a little bit ahead of this technology. I think there's a lot more work to do with this technology. We do have to um, have patient-centered care. There are certainly patients who have had multiple miscarriages or other difficult situations in their journey that this um, technology would benefit. But um, most patients um, who are young, um, I would suggest patients under the age of 37, we probably ought not to do this technology um, as a first line. IVF or using the PGS using as an indicator? The PGS. And explain that a little bit more because as a woman ages, um, is it more likely that an embryo could have more abnormal cells? Can you explain that? There is a bit. Um, embryos. That, from um, older women do have a higher frequency of chromosomal abnormalities. We know that the miscarriage rate goes up um, as women age. Um, we also know that, that approximately two-thirds of all miscarriages result from chromosomally abnormal embryos. And so it's pretty logical for a patient or a physician to say, let us help you, let us offer you a technology to determine whether or not your embryo is chromosomally normal. And I, I think that the developers of this technology have, you know, have very noble, are on a noble quest to help patients get pregnant. Um, but to date, um, if, if you biopsy five cells and half of them are abnormal, the embryo is characterized as abnormal and discarded. And we know that, that if only one of those five cells is abnormal, or two of those five cells is abnormal, there's a pretty good chance that that embryo can self-edit 
self-correct, and result in a normal pregnancy. Uh, in this article in New York Magazine, they talk about studies of mice where they see that um, self-correction happening. Yes. So we have a lot to learn. It's a pretty exciting field to be part of. And uh, it's our pleasure to help couples on this journey of having a family. I want to uh, take a... Oh, go ahead, Dr. Patrizia. If I may also add, uh, I... Uh, I also respectfully disagree with uh, Dr. Groh in that uh, uh, offering this technology to women that are uh, older than, uh, than the 37 years old, it can be detrimental in that uh, if they produce only few embryos and uh, the result from the laboratory comes back and say, I'm sorry, there are no normal embryos for transfer. And the diagnosis, as I, we said up to now, is not 100% accurate. It's not even 99% or 98% accurate. So there is a risk of uh, completely uh, devastating uh, uh, that particular couple in saying there are no embryos for transfer. She only made a few, and now she has to start another cycle again, if she can. And if she cannot, then uh, we are in a, in, in a very uh, difficult situation at that point. So I definitely prefer not to offer the biopsy at this stage for women that uh, are 41, 42, 43, and just let the nature take, take its course. And the procedure is uh, rather uh, time-intensive, emotionally exhaustive, not to mention very expensive. Correct. It, it is an expensive procedure. And, you know, our goal is to help couples have families. And if the expense of a procedure is going to make that treatment less accessible to couples, I think we really ought to be careful in, as, as Dr. Petruccio says, offering or suggesting that couples have this technology done because it does increase expense. And for many couples, it does not increase their chances of having a live birth. Exactly. I want to add a, a caller into this conversation. Uh, Nina is calling from Hamden. Nina, you're on the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm calling in because Dr. Patrizio is responsible for creating my family with IVF, uh, with, uh, we refer to it as PGD, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. Um, I was trying to get pregnant for three years, well, a year before I met him, and then two years later we had our son um, because my husband has a uh, kidney disease, and I was not getting pregnant with really weird cycles, and we learned that through PGD, I had almost 50% abnormal embryos and 50% with kidney disease, and we transferred one considered normal, healthy, and one with sort of an atypical mosaic, and the normal, healthy one took, and I just could not be more grateful for the science and for Dr. Patrizio. You've made our world more full. Well, thank you, Nina, uh, for your call. Dr. Patrizia, would you like to respond to Nina? No, actually, the case just uh, uh, illustrated and reinforced what we had discussed before, that uh, the technology that we have available these days is extremely powerful for making a, a correct diagnosis of uh, genetic disease. Like in the case of, uh, of Nina, uh, she mentioned that her husband had a, a, a kidney disease. Therefore, there was a, a misprint in one, in one of the pages of uh, the chapter that uh, is characterizing the genetic di uh, disease of the kidneys. So that is very robust. 
what is not uh, robust yet, it's uh, the detection of the correct number of chromosomes, i.e. the correct number of book chapters in the, in the, in the cells. And that's because of the problem of uh, mosaicism. So genetic disease, fantastic technology. We, we should use it every time there is a risk of uh, producing an offspring with uh, a genetic uh, disease that uh, um, can be uh, lethal in some cases. But for the chromosome uh, uh, testing, that's where we, are, uh, we ought to, to, to wait for uh, evolving in the, in the technology and perhaps uh, trying to find different solutions to the problem of uh, mosaicism. Today we're talking about in vitro fertilization on where we live. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. We're also getting an email from Krista. Uh, she writes, I had IVF after three IUI and Clomid treatments. I was only 24 and got hyperstimulated. Had 36 eggs. Only two embryos made it to be implanted. Only one survived. Thank God for it. I have my daughter who turns 10 in January. So another... Uh, IVF success story. But the reason I wanted to read this, uh, Dr. Daniel Groh, who's with me in studio, um, IVF is used by young women as well. Krista was 25, 24, 25 when she underwent the, the treatment. It is. And it's, and it's not just um, um, related to age. You know, there are patients whose husbands or partners don't have very high sperm counts or don't have... Um, many sperm or at all in the ejaculate. There are patients who s have severe endometriosis. Um, there, are, there are many, many disorders that patients don't invite upon themselves that really affect their ability to have a child. It doesn't um, just affect older women. And, um, and uh, there are lots of uh, IVF success stories. You know, I want to go back, if I can, to... Um, a, a case, and you know, I have a. We treated a patient recently whose whose um, grandmother died of breast cancer, whose father died of prostate cancer, um, all related to BRCA1 mutations. And um, and this patient came and said, "I'd like to have a baby um, without the risk of breast cancer." The patient herself had had both um, breasts removed to prevent breast cancer. Devastating family situation. And we were able to use this technology that Dr. Patricio uh, described as, as detecting a, an abnormal word or a, a bad word in the, mm -hmm. in the book to, to help families like this have children with a new generation free of genetic disease. It's pretty exciting. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Our guests today are Dr. Daniel Grove, visiting professor at UConn, lead physician and associate fellowship director at the Center for Advanced Reproductive Services. From the studios at Yale University, Dr. Pasquale Patrizio, professor and director of the Yale Fertility Center. They're, well, they're here talking about in vitro fertilization today. A cover story of New York Magazine suggests many viable embryos have been discarded because of a, a certain test or technology used to determine whether an embryo should be implanted. Now, have you gone through IVF? What's your reaction? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. We'll hear from a Connecticut woman after the break.
This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Now, I know many of you tune in to Where We Live on your car radio or stream us live at WMPR.org. If you can't listen live mornings at 9 or evenings at 7, you can subscribe to Where We Live on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or any podcast app. Today, we've been focusing on IVF, or in vitro fertilization. What was your experience trying to have a baby using this procedure? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Um, in studio with me is Dr. Daniel Grove, visiting professor at UConn, lead physician and associate fellowship director at the Center for Advanced Reproductive Services. From Yale Studios, uh, Yale University Studios, Dr. Pasquale Patrizio, professor and director of the Yale Fertility Center. And joining us on the phone right now is Stephanie Carroll. She's a West Simsbury resident and a former patient at the Center for Advanced Reproductive Services. Stephanie, welcome to the show. Good morning. I understand that you're a mother of four, so a very busy life. And tell us about uh, when you decided to use IVF. So I had some challenges having my oldest child with a previous marriage. And then when I remarried, um, it turned out that both myself and my husband had difficulties um, with fertility. We had challenges um, conceiving. And so at that point, I sought out the help of um, the center and they were phenomenal. I mean, so I had I went to IVF and I had um, a successful result. I had a son who just turned eight years old, and then I had some leftover embryos that were frozen. And so then three years later, we had our second son, who was a result of that um, first IVF cycle. So how did you navigate this whole process? I know that you were complimentary of Center for Advanced Reproductive Services, but when it comes time to decide which embryos to implant and uh, the challenges or the risk factors, how did you uh, navigate that, Stephanie, you and your husband? Sure. So in terms of choosing the center, I knew that they were phenomenal, and certainly all centers have to report their success rates. So I had done my research, and, you know, it was just fortunate that they were here close by in Connecticut, but in terms of when it came time to choose the embryos, that was up to my doctor, Dr. Benediva, and so he did choose the the best embryos. Um, They rate them and grade them, and so that first cycle when we had our older son, um, you know, he chose the best embryos. We did not go through the genetic testing because, fortunately, I did not have any sort of genetic um, disorder or family history, nor did my husband. So that wasn't required. So it was just a matter of transferring the strongest embryos possible. Uh, part of today's show, Stephanie, we're, we're discussing a test that's used to determine which of these embryos are the strongest or most viable. In some cases, uh, couples or women that are having difficulty for multiple reasons are choosing to uh, implant what are called abnormal embryos. Um, if that had to come down the line, I mean, what was that? Was that something that you would feel? Because the process is so strenuous, both emotionally uh, taxing, time intensive, emotionally, I'm just curious what your thoughts are on these questions that are now being raised about the technology. Well, I think that the technology is phenomenal. I, I have a number of friends who have gone through this process. Um, some have needed that testing. Others have not. But I have one friend in particular that that testing um, was able to screen and she was able to find out that some of her 
embryos were problematic, whether or not they had Down syndrome or whatever the case was, she knew that in advance. And so she was able to make a decision about not transferring those specific embryos. Again, she knew that they um, had abnormalities. Um, So I think that, you know, women who are going through this process, the more information you can have, the better. And certainly it's an individual choice. Um, You know, they tell you what they can if you, if you choose to have this test. And then it's a decision about, okay, of the embryos I have available to me, you know, what is the health of these embryos? And then, you know, again, every circumstance is individual. And, you know, again, I was lucky in which I did not have the screening because I didn't feel that there was a need. Uh, I'm 40 years old now. At the time that I went to IVF, I was 31. Um, So my age did not put me at a huge risk factor. But again, for women who are having children older, which is certainly increasing, this is great technology that they can glean some information about the health of the embryos that they are transferring. And I I think it's fantastic that it's available. I understand, Stephanie, that you have a fourth child conceived naturally. Uh, What was that like to uh, realize you didn't have to go through a fertility (laughs) treatment? Well, it was shocking. Um, Again, it was, you know, against all odds. So I have three boys, and and then our fourth is a girl. And so we were shocked. She's our little miracle. But I remember when I found out I was pregnant, I was like, how, how can this be? And so I, you know, emailed Dr. Benediva and I was, you know, who was at the center, who was my, my physician, who's phenomenal. And I said, how is this possible? And he said, well, you know, the chances were not good, but there was still a chance and obviously it happened. So we were really, really fortunate. Well, I want to thank Stephanie Carroll for sharing her story. We're happy to hear that you have four healthy children. She's from West Simsbury. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you. I wanted to go back to uh, the physicians uh, in studio with us today. Uh, First to Dr. Daniel Groh, who's with the Center for Advanced Reproductive Services. You know, cost plays a big factor in this. How do you counsel women who, because what does insurance pay for? I, I understand that depending on the state, it it's also varies. And, and for women who can't afford it, what do they do? Yeah, so that's a great question. And we know that um, infertility is a roller coaster. There's a lot of emotional ups and downs. And I, I think that adding cost uh, to that makes those up and downs worse. Um, I happen to come from a state where I practiced for you know almost a quarter century in Massachusetts, just up the road, where there's an infertility mandate. Mm-hmm. And the stress levels of patients are much, much lower. Um, they just are. And um, so th- there's some benefit to having a legislative mandate where patients with commercial insurance have infertility as a covered benefit. I think it helps. Um, we do have to realize that these treatments are a lot of work. They're a lot of time. And some places are a lot of money. And um, we have teams that work with the patients and help them negotiate and and try to make, you know, hours at the center and other places very convenient for patients, um, try to minimize unnecessary testing and really have a compassionate approach to care. Dr. Pasquale Patrizio, professor and director of the Yale Fertility Center, uh, what is being done to make IVF more accessible? Few concepts uh, towards the making the, the treatment more affordable, uh, trying not to 
overstimulate the ovaries like uh, was done in the past. In other words, there is no need to collect so many eggs like in, uh, let's say, five years ago, six years ago. Uh, today we have reduced, therefore, the amount of uh, medications that they are costly that patient has to use. I also want to add that Connecticut is one of the 15 states that uh, provide in, uh, insurance mandated coverage for in vitro. So that's also a good news for uh, women in Connecticut. Um, and uh, the, the opportunity of uh, being extremely sensitive to what type of uh, add-on to offer is also important for reduction of the cost. I mean, in other words, many of this testing that we are talking today, in particular the, the PGS, it's not a covered benefit. In other words, even if the insurance will cover the treatment of in vitro, the moment that the embryos are made, if uh, we have to biopsy the embryo to make a chromosomal diagnosis, that test uh, cost is not covered. So therefore, this is up to, to the couple. So that's why, that's another reason why if the uh, result of the test for chromosome, again, I just want to stress the word chromosomal disorders, is not accurate because of homozygism, then why to, to, to put a, a, another four or $5,000 uh, for patients to, to pay off uh, uh, you know, these this debts? Uh, Dr. Patrizio, we, we've mentioned cost a few times when we're saying that. What is the, the average cost for one cycle of, of IVF? Well, there are, uh, again, uh, insurance is paying for uh, in, uh, in Connecticut in about 70, 80% of the cases, but those patients that do not have coverage, they are uh, looking at uh, including medications at about uh, uh, $14,000. If you add another 5000 for the testing, now you are going to be very close to $20,000. And if you spend this money because you have no coverage, and uh, someone will tell you, listen, there are no embryos that are normal for transfer. Now your option is either to say, okay, I'm done, or to, to look for, you know, to, to spend another $20,000. That's why it's extremely important that before the testing is going to be offered uh, on a large scale, this PGS, which we are talking today about, we need to have valid result, robust results. Uh, we're almost out of time, but I wanted to ask uh, both physicians, I'll start with Dr. Patrizio, other parts of uh, the world where we should be looking to as IVF models? Well, I think that uh, in the United States, we should be very proud of our uh, success rate. I mean, when we compare our uh, uh, results, uh, national results with the results of Europe, for example, or uh, uh, Asia Pacific uh, regions, we are always ahead of the game. So I think that we have a very successful uh, uh, practice of uh, uh, accessory production in the United States. So we are probably looked upon other than us looking at, at others, but not to be uh, completely uh, dismissive of other countries. Uh, what they are doing for now, uh, more than we are doing, they are reducing the number of embryos to transfer. So they are really, and when I say they, I mean Europeans, they are really looking very carefully at uh, not uh, creating twin pregnancies, uh, while in the United States, the concept of twin is still taken with a little bit of uh, relief by some couples that they do want to have twins. And uh, and that's a big difference between us and Europe. But we, we are more successful than them. 
meanwhile, I understand the Association for Reproductive Medicine is possibly going to weigh in on the technology PGS. Dr. Gro, can you tell us anything about how that could impact how fertility clinics move forward? With the PGS? Yes. Yeah. Um, I think that, uh, you know, we are... And partially in response to this very well-written article that we're discussing today, discussing this in a public forum, um, it's, just, it's generated a lot of debate amongst clinics. And I think the pendulum is going to swing back to a place where this test is offered for couples only who really need it, couples who've had many miscarriages or couples who've had um, extraordinary circumstances, and this not be mainstream testing. Well, I want to thank uh, Dr. Daniel Grove, visiting professor at UConn, lead physician and associate fellowship director at the Center for Advanced Reproductive Services. Thank you for coming in, and uh, we will be tweeting out some links uh, uh, for uh, our listeners to learn more, not only about this article and the questions raised in New York Magazine, but uh, articles to find out more information on IVF and other fertility uh, treatments. So thank you again, Dr. Grove. It was really great to be here. Nice meeting you, Lucy. Also, Dr. Pasquale Patrizio, professor and director of the Yale Fertility Center. He joined us today from Yale University Studios in New Haven, Connecticut. Uh, thank you, Dr. Pasquale Patrizio. And uh, with just a few seconds to go, your advice to couples who want to know more information, where should they go? No, there are uh, uh, links on the uh, SRM website for patients about uh, uh, various uh, tools and technologies that are available. So that is definitely a good, uh, a good place for uh, uh, getting more information, the SRM website for patients. Thank you again, Dr. Patrizio. Thank you. A tweet from Kirsten says, your audience should know there's a pantheon of fertility treatments, also available IUI, one step before IVF. Maybe that's a topic for another show. Uh, IUI helped her conceive a son. Thank you so much for listening today. Our senior producer, Lydia Brown, produced today's show. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf, and I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.